Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A hearing today about unsealing the affidavit used to justify the raid of former President Trump's home. What the judge says and what we can expect to see next. A former executive at the Trump Organization pleads guilty to tax evasion and agrees to testify against the company. The government doubles down on efforts to vaccinate against monkeypox. The CDC director now calling on Congress to grant them more power. A growing body of research is offering a new theory on how monkeypox spreads. And it's different from what health experts have been saying. The Big Ten Conference with soon-to-be members USC and UCLA has landed a new record-setting seven-year TV rights agreement. We'll have the details coming up. Today, a hearing in Palm Beach related to the raid at former President Trump's home. The judge has indicated that he will unseal part of the affidavit that was used to justify the search. NTD's Paul Graney is on the ground with more details. Today at this court, just four miles from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, a judge said he will likely release part of a critical document, a document that the DOJ used to convince this court that the former president's home should be searched. At today's hearing, the DOJ argued that the probable cause affidavit should not be unsealed because it would interfere with its criminal investigation into the former president. The DOJ wants everything to be kept secret. On the other side, we have mainly media organizations pressing for more information. They agreed that there are reasons not to make everything public, but pressed the judge to unveil as much information as possible and just hide or redact anything sensitive. Remember, this is not a right of media access, it is a right of public access. And the core of that right is the ability to monitor the functioning of the government. They said given the political nature of this case, People need to know that the investigation is legitimate. We are entitled to monitor the affairs of our government at all levels, and that is the interest in this essence that we were asserting today. The judge agreed that it was in the public interest to give people as much information as they can have, but asked, is it not also in the public interest to ensure the investigation proceeds untainted? Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt was the one who actually signed off on the search warrant for last week's raid. He's now giving the DOJ one week to make their case for keeping each part of the affidavit private. After that, he'll weigh the requests. Paul Graney, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Ben Carson for his perspective on the FBI's raid on Trump's home. Dr. Carson is a former neurosurgeon and politician who served as U.S. Secretary of HUD. He's also the founder of the American Cornerstone Institute. Dr. Ben Carson, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, how concerned are you about the FBI and DOJ's raid on Trump's home? Well, I'm extremely concerned about it because of the way that it was carried out and because the secrecy around it. You know, we're not finding out what's in the affidavit, which means we don't know specifically what they were looking for. And, uh, you know, I'm concerned that the Fourth Amendment could be violated here. Uh, you know, illegal search and seizure. Uh, we won't know that until we're able to actually see what the basis of this raid was. 
And even more concerning than that is the fact that just about every president uh, takes documents with them uh, for posterity, uh, for their potential libraries, for whatever reason. And uh, some of those things include things that are uh, confidential or at least shouldn't be shared uh, until they've been, you know, purged appropriately. Now, clearly everyone wants justice, and the justice system should follow the facts wherever they may lead. But is there anything about this that makes you think that it's just about politics and not about justice? Well, the thing that makes me think that is that uh, President Trump has been out of office for over a year and a half. And, uh, you know, he's had these documents all that time. And now, all of a sudden, it's an emergency. Uh, all of a sudden, we've got to unleash all of these federal agents, and we've got to go in with, with guns blazing. I mean, give me a break. Uh, you know, he was cooperating. He said, you can have whatever you want. Um, you know, this is for drama. This is for people to see so that they can understand that they don't have the power and the resources that Donald Trump has. And if we can do it to him, we can do it to anybody. So in your view, has the justice system deviated from what the founding fathers intended? I, I think they have severely deviated from it. You know, the, the, the founders of our country were extremely thoughtful. And they studied various governments from around the world uh, throughout history. And they wanted to avoid some of the things that uh, caused the downfall of other societies. And that was one of the reasons they gave us the Bill of Rights, including the Fourth Amendment for uh, unnecessary search and seizure. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to just go and say, we think there's something in your house. We don't know what it is, but we just are going to come in and we're just going to do what we want. And we're going to go through all your stuff. And we're going to take whatever we want. Well, that was to prevent that kind of thing, because that thing that was going on. And uh, here we are potentially allowing it to occur again. And that's why it's so important that we find out what is in the affidavit and is it actually uh, something that would suggest the necessity for this type of invasion. A lot of conservative Americans are losing trust in America's institutions due to what they see as the politicization and weaponization of the justice system. In your view, what can Americans do if they are concerned or dis disheartened by what's happening? Well, I think one of the things you can do is recognize the power that vested in we the people through our vote. And you must be a serious voter. You know, most people, they go into the voting booth, they're just looking for the name that looks familiar. Uh, oh, I know that name, Satan. Yeah, I know that name. And that's the one they vote for. Uh, you got to do better than that. You got to know who these people are. You got to know, do they truly represent your values? And it's not just a matter of whether they have a D or R next to their name. You need to know who they are and what have they advocated and does it align with your values? Uh, that will make a tremendous difference. What's your view on former President Trump's potential 2024 presidential run? 
Well, I think uh, this episode has probably solidified his resolve to run now because I, I think he realizes what trouble we're in. And I remember uh, seeing him on an interview 30 years ago with Oprah, and she was asking him about running for president. And he said, I don't, I don't want to do that. He says, but if I thought our country was in trouble, then I would do it. And he did do it. And I think he recognizes now that we're even in more trouble uh, because of some of the things that are going on that we've been talking about. And, uh, you know, he is a, a patriot who loves this country. And uh, he knows that it's going to be a horrendous fight and that there are those who will do anything to keep him from running. Uh, and I think that's just going to encourage him more. And what should our politicians do to help heal our country? Uh, well, they should start seeing what it is that their constituents are interested in, maybe more so than what they're interested in themselves. Because we have a democratic republic, uh, that means those representatives are supposed to represent the people who elected them. And uh, when we finished the Constitution, and Benjamin Franklin came out of the Constitution Hall. He was asked by a woman, sir, what do we have here, a monarchy or a republic? And he said, a republic, if we can keep it. That was a big if. And now is when that is threatened more than any other time. But we can keep it. But it means we have to be involved. We have to do something. We can't just stand around and complain. Dr. Ben Carson, thank you very much for your time. It has been a pleasure being with you. Thank you. And former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg pleaded guilty today to tax evasion charges. Weisselberg was charged for failing to pay taxes for 15 years on $1.7 million worth of compensation. Prosecutors said that the Trump Organization gave Weisselberg rent for a Manhattan apartment, lease payments for two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, and tuition for family members. The compensation went untaxed, and now Weisselberg will face a five-month jail sentence. He also has to pay back the taxes and fees that he now owes. He may be released after 100 days of good behavior. Weisselberg's charge for unpaid taxes is the only criminal case resulting from the ongoing probe into the Trump Organization's business practices. Weisselberg may be asked to testify against the Trump Organization in October during the Manhattan prosecutor's probe into the company. And in health news, the White House today is doubling down on efforts to get people vaccinated against monkeypox, particularly homosexual men who have been most affected thus far. This as the CDC is preparing to expand its powers, including new mandates on collecting data. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports for us. An additional 1.8 million doses of the monkeypox vaccine will soon be available. Starting Thursday, states and local officials can request more vaccines to distribute at large LGBT events in the coming weeks and months. The White House's monkeypox coordinator describes the initiative. HHS is launching a pilot program that will provide up to 50,000 doses from the national stockpile to be made available for Pride and other events that will have high attendance of gay and bisexual men. 
Intimate contact is the highest risk form of the spread, but the White House is now warning Americans that it's not the only way the disease spreads. They say other populations could become more vulnerable to monkeypox, including college students, sports teams, and children at daycare centers. More than 13,500 cases have now been found in the U.S. The director of the CDC says distributing the vaccines can be complicated. And then they will necessarily receive dose two at their local jurisdiction, and we anticipate that. We've seen that before when we've had to do when we've done mass vaccination, for example, um, with uh, COVID. So we are prepared uh, to collect the immunization data. The CDC's latest goal is to make data collection mandatory. Right now, that's voluntary. The agency plans to ask Congress to expand its powers, one of those powers being to require states to submit health data to the government agency. This is one of the many ways that the agency is planning to reshape the way it operates after they say the government failed at handling the COVID pandemic properly. The agency is also creating an executive council that will report directly to CDC directors. Director Walensky and the CDC is now closely monitoring the reemergence of polio. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskop, NTD News. And more on monkeypox. A growing body of research is offering some new insight into how the disease is transmitted. Now, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation wants monkeypox to be treated as a sexually transmitted infection. Since the beginning of the outbreak, health experts have been saying that monkeypox is transmitted mostly through intimate skin-to-skin -skin contact, particularly between men. But now, more research suggests that it's the whole act, rather than skin-to-skin -skin contact, that is likely the primary way that monkeypox spreads. The new research includes three studies published in peer-reviewed journals, as well as reports from national, regional, and global health authorities. Dr. Anuradha Hazra, medical director of the University of Chicago Sexual Wellness Clinic, said, quote, A growing body of evidence supports that sexual transmission, particularly through seminal fluids, is occurring with the current monkeypox outbreak. And the suspect, accused of stabbing author Salman Rushdie on stage in New York last week, has been indicted. He appeared in court earlier today. A grand jury indicted 24-year-old suspect Hadi Matar of New Jersey, and he was arraigned in Chautauqua County Court. Matar was charged with second-degree attempted murder and second-degree assault. He pleaded not guilty to both charges. Authorities arrested Matar after he allegedly stabbed Rushdie multiple times during a lecture at the Chautauqua Institution on August 12th. Rushdie has faced decades of death threats for his books Critical of Islam. And the U.S. says it will begin trade talks with Taiwan in the fall. It's to strengthen economic ties as China gets more aggressive against the island. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has the details. America says that it'll start negotiating with Taiwan on a trade initiative this fall. It'll touch on things like agriculture, technology, and the significant distortions that can occur from the non-market practices of state-owned and state-controlled enterprises. It could be a response to the Pelosi visit and the overreaction of uh, Beijing in terms of the almost total blockade of the country, uh, Taiwan, you know, with the Navy ships. I mean, really, it's the PLA Navy uh, did a what looked like a dress rehearsal 
of a naval blockade. Anders Kaur is the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk and author of The Concentration of Power. Kaur hopes these talks aren't only symbolic, but that they'll also move the United States and Taiwan closer together. China is currently Taiwan's largest trading partner, accounting for 28% of its exports. The U.S. is in second place. It is very symbolic. Riley Walters is a deputy director at the Hudson Institute. Walters says the trade investment framework negotiations with Taiwan already cover most of the recently announced topics. A lot of the stuff I think announced within this uh, trade negotiations is, is stuff we're already doing, really, with Taiwan. Um, you know, again, U.S. and Taiwan have been talking about trade for over 30 years now. He thinks offsetting the impact from state-owned enterprises, such as those from China, is something new they added. Even if it were just symbolic, it's important because Beijing needs to see that the United States stands with Taiwan. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Chang says Washington perceives Taiwan as being endangered. Since the 1800s, we Americans have drawn our western defense perimeter, not off the coast of Hawaii, not off the coast of Guam, but off the coast of East Asia. And Taiwan sits in the middle of that critical perimeter. China is against the U.S. and Taiwan strengthening their ties. It urges the U.S. to immediately stop any form of official interaction and contact with the island. Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. Up next, Brian Stelter is leaving CNN. Over the years, the longtime host has come under some scrutiny for alleged bias reporting and 20 people face criminal charges for voter fraud in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis says they'll pay the price. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. CNN is canceling its longest running show, Reliable Sources. And longtime host Brian Stelter is set to leave the network for good. CNN's Reliable Sources is scheduled to end this Sunday after airing once a week for 30 years. The end of the media analysis show also marks the end of Brian Stelter's time with CNN. He was the show's anchor. Stelter told NPR he's grateful for the show and his team's examination of the media, truth, and the stories that shape our world. Stelter was known for criticizing conservative media, especially while Trump was president. Conservative stations often criticized him in turn. At the same time, he came under scrutiny for not properly reporting on CNN's Chris Cuomo scandal. Chris Cuomo advised his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, on how to handle his allegations of sexual misconduct. After Chris Licht became CNN's CEO this May, the network is reportedly trying to put forth a less opinionated product. And as kids prepare to go back to school, most of them won't have to deal with pandemic restrictions anymore. But the era of masks and distance learning is still impacting them emotionally. Schools are rolling out new measures to cope with the situation. Fourth grader Leah Rainey's day at school began with an emotional check-in. Responding to an online inquiry about her state of mind, she chose silly. I said that I was feeling silly because... I is the second day of school, and I love school so much. Lakewood Elementary in Kentucky is one of the thousands of schools across the country using the program to check in with students. Well, this provided just, again, an opportunity for those maybe shy, quiet kids who needed to talk 
who need to reach out, who are experiencing things that we have no idea that they're feeling. Over in California, an artist is putting the finishing touches on a giant sunrise mural for a well-spaced room at Irvine's University High School. The room features potted succulents, jute rugs, and a hanging egg chair evoking a relaxed feel. These are spaces of calm that we can provide those um, in-bed students having healthy stress management strategies so that they can reset, recenter, and kind of refocus. The same well-spaced rooms are going into all 17 middle and high schools in the district. And across in New Hampshire, more than 1,000 teachers have taken stress management training courses this year. They're learning how to deal with burnout and to bring therapeutic techniques to their classes. Sessions include breath work and movements like clapping hands or snapping fingers. You can then take these skills and these strategies, even though they might sound silly, the breathing and the rhythm sticks, but it makes a huge difference and it can train your brain to think differently. And I think we all need that. Teachers say they're seeing behavioral changes in the classroom and are trying to learn strategies to help. Experts say the pandemic has magnified the mental health vulnerability of America's youth, accompanied by a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicidal intent. According to a CDC report, more than 40% of high school students experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the pandemic. And families are bracing for higher costs on school supplies due to inflation. Single-parent families are especially feeling the brunt of it, and they may need to cut back. This is one sixty-eight For Julia Cisneros of Chicago, buying supplies is the last resort. As a single mom of four kids ranging from 8 to 17 years old, she first snatched up half-used supplies from school. Whatever the teachers at the end of the school year, they say, who wants to take supplies? You got to lined up and get as much as you can. They don't even use them the whole way. They use them like halfway and they throw them out. And that's why we save and recycle. School uniforms are big ticket items. Last year, Cisneros spent $600 on two sets of school uniforms for each son. But this year, she has to cut back. Since I have two boys, they're almost the same size. I buy one for each, so. According to a survey by the National Retail Federation, or NRF, back-to-school spending is expected to go up by a whopping 40.6 percent versus 2019, and back-to-college spending is expected to go up 35.5 percent. The survey also says that families with kids in elementary through high school plan to spend an average of $864 on school items. That's $15 more than last year and $168 more than 2019. 2022 total spending is expected to hit $36.9 billion, on par with 2021 spending, a record high. Margaret Mack from Connecticut is visiting her daughter, who is a single parent of three kids in Chicago. She shops at different stores to find the best deals for her two grandsons. Mack says inflation is especially hard on single parents. It's a major impact because she now has two children that require additional supplies for school, and it cuts into the budget. I mean, there are things that she has to do, groceries. You try to do recreation for the kids, and that cuts into it, and not only that, gas. And she has an SUV, so her gas expenses probably double what a normal vehicle is. 
The survey also shows more than one-third, or 38 percent, of shoppers would cut back on other areas to cover the cost of back to school and college. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And more on inflation. One of the biggest home improvement chains in the U.S. is giving away millions of dollars to its workers as an inflation bonus. NTD's Phil Zoe has that story. Lowe's Home Improvement Store is awarding $55 million in bonuses to its hourly frontline workers. That's to help with high prices amid inflation levels not seen since the 80s. They're taking the pain now for a larger payoff, a return on investment when the economy uh, ultimately improves. Mike Sorelli knows all about keeping top talent in companies. He's the CEO of the Talent War Group and the co-author of The Talent War. They've just strengthened the company culture, the morale, and they've created more loyal team members within Lowe's. And those team members will not soon forget. And they've literally quite taken action, or as we say in the business world, they've put their money where their mouth is. Lowe's has around 2,000 stores across the U.S. and Canada, employing a whopping 300,000 workers. It's the second largest home improvement chain in the U.S., behind only Home Depot. This news is getting out. It's great press for Lowe's. And naturally, customers are going to see this, and they're going to be more lo loyal to Lowe's as well. This is not the first time Lowe's has given out bonuses. In February of last year, the home improvement giant gave $80 million as pandemic bonuses. That came out to $300 for full-time workers and $150 for part-time and seasonal workers. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And in election news, authorities in Florida are in the process of arresting 20 individuals for voter fraud. Governor Ron DeSantis highlighted these efforts in a press conference today. These folks voted illegally in this case, and there's going to be other grounds for other prosecutions in the future. Uh, they are disqualified from voting uh, because they've been convicted of either murder or sexual assault, and they do not have the right to vote. They have been disenfranchised under Florida law. The majority of those people voted in Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade counties. The governor says voting illegally is a third-degree felony in Florida and that those people will pay the price for it. They could face a $5,000 fine and up to five years in prison. DeSantis also mentioned there, will be, there were illegal immigrants who voted. The investigation is still ongoing and could lead to more charges. Florida launched an Office of Election Crimes and Security in July, and the cases made public today are the first cases the office prosecuted. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, community members held a forum in San Francisco in response to attacks on elderly members of the Asian community. This time, it was several juveniles who allegedly carried out a robbery and assault. And the Big Ten Conference, with soon-to-be members USC and UCLA, has landed a new record-setting seven-year TV rights agreement. NTD's Dave Martin has the details coming up. Now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson will serve an 11-game suspension without pay and pay a $5 million fine after being accused of sexual misconduct by more than two dozen women. Watson was originally given a six-game suspension by the NFL's third-party arbiter, but the NFL appealed the decision wanting a longer sentence, while the Players Association accepted it. The case was then set to be heard by another third party, but this agreement between the league and the Players Association will eliminate that hearing. Watson was accused of inappropriate conduct during a number of massage therapy sessions over a one-year period while he was playing for the Houston Texans. Two grand juries declined to pursue criminal charges and all but one of the lawsuits against him have been settled. Watson has continued to maintain his innocence. Last week, though, before the team's preseason opener, he publicly apologized to, quote, all the women I have impacted. The three-time Pro Bowl quarterback sat out all of last season after requesting a trade. He was finally dealt to Cleveland in March for a package that included three first-round picks. He then signed a five-year, $230 million contract. Watson won't be eligible to play until week 13 when the Browns will face, coincidentally, his old team, the Texans, in Houston. And in college sports, the Big Ten Conference, fresh off luring UCLA and USC to their league, has agreed to a new seven-year media rights contract worth a reported $7 billion, according to the Associated Press. The deal involves agreements with major networks Fox, NBC, and CBS, and is believed to be the richest ever on an annual basis for a college sports package. The league currently has 14 member schools, but will add UCLA and USC in 2024 to cover most of the major TV markets across the country. The agreement starts next summer and includes football games as well as men's basketball competition. It also ends the league's long-standing relationship with ESPN, which has broadcasted Big Ten games since 1982. Reportedly, the league offered ESPN a seven-year package for $380 million a year, but the network declined. Instead, they'll be the exclusive home of the SEC starting in 2024. Finally, in baseball, Mets rookie Brett Beatty homered in his first career at bat last night a two-run shot off Brave starter Jake Odorizzi. He becomes just the fifth Mets player to go yard in his first plate appearance, and it happened on his first big league swing. Beatty, a third baseman, is one of the team's top prospects after starring in the minor leagues the past two seasons. The 22-year-old was New York's first round selection in the 2019 draft. His home run last night helped propel the Mets to a 9-7 win over Atlanta as the team now holds a four-and-a-half game lead in the division. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And over in California, after a string of recent attacks on Asian seniors in San Francisco, community members voiced their feelings with city leaders at a long-awaited town hall. In a San Francisco town hall meeting, leaders and community members discussed an uptick in violence against Asian elders with local authorities. There's been a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes uh, since the pandemic started and has not died down at all. And over the last week and a half in San Francisco, there's been three additional attacks on elderly Asian people. 
ABC7 reported one of those attacks. 70-year-old Mrs. Wren was violently robbed and injured multiple times by a teenager and three juveniles just over two weeks ago. Three of the four individuals were under the age of 18, as young as 11 years old. Um, and that is sad. The DA's office announced that three of the four suspects have been arrested and the 18-year-old has been charged with a felony. They are still working on locating a 14-year-old. One attendee commented on values and morals in today's generation of youth. It's crazy. Media is raising our children nowadays. You know, I see it with just parents giving a, uh, uh, their phone to their kid in, in a grocery store to have them watch YouTube. You know what I mean? Like... These attacks have sparked outcry from the local community demanding action from authorities. The town hall meeting was held on Tuesday and the House was packed at Victory Hall in Chinatown. What we've seen over the last two years, and this, some of this started in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, is really, particularly in 2020 and 2021, was an increase in attacks against the Asian community. The district attorney, members of the San Francisco Police Department, and Asian American community leaders were among the attendees. According to the U.S. Census in 2021, Asian Americans make up about 37 percent of San Francisco's population. One of the co-organizers of the event requested the chief to hire more police leaders from the Chinese community, which would help with following up on incidents with non-English speakers. We've had enough of this. We need leaders who really care about Asian Americans, Chinese Americans who live here, and who more than someone who is from that community and who cares about protecting our people as a police officer, as a police leader. And so I think there are a lot of qualified people out there if we really look. The district attorney answered questions from the public and says her team is working hard to solve the cases. I think it's a sad state when we get to the point that our children are victimizing and, and assaulting who should be the most respected members of our society. But not everyone thinks that the newly appointed DA is doing enough. Send the message to these thugs. You come into San Francisco, we're going to throw the book at you. You're going to go to prison and uh, you're going to pay restitution. And as long as they get the book thrown at them, the message will be sent to the rest of their friends that we're not going to come to San Francisco to do these crimes because all these perpetrators are coming from outside of San Francisco. A San Francisco supervisor in attendance talked about providing more funding to the police force. He also said that crime prevention starts with giving media exposure to arrests as much as the attack itself. Because that ultimately is what's going to send a message to would-be attackers that it, shouldn't, that it shouldn't be something you even think about in San Francisco. If you commit a hate crime or a hate incident in San Francisco, you're going to be caught, you're going to be prosecuted and held accountable. That's why we have to send that message and be really vigilant about um, communicating that we're not going to tolerate this kind of violence here. One attendee says she's been fighting actively since November 2021 to find the killers of Jasper Wu, a baby victim struck by a stray bullet while riding in his mom's car on the freeway. Who was killed on November 6th and his... His killing has been classified as a car accident, according to the California Highway Patrol. And um, I just think that's devastating because there's the, just the violence just absolutely needs to end. The co-organizers said they were happy about the large turnout and community involvement, but they didn't feel anything concrete from the city's leadership and think there's still progress to be made. They may talk to the mayor and continue the momentum and next steps.
Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. Still to come, dueling military exercises taking place on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Tensions continue to build between Taiwan and China. And Washington's number one national security threat. Is it China? We'll look at new data on the U.S. stance after the break. Tensions continue to build between China and Taiwan after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island earlier this month. Now both sides are conducting military exercises. Here are the details. Taiwan began military drills on Wednesday in response to ongoing aggression by Chinese Communist forces over the past two weeks. The Chinese regime has continuously launched missiles over Taiwan and sent aircraft into the sky around the island since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan on August 2nd. The tension uh, between the Taiwan Strait is getting higher and it's obvious in knowing that. And, but that's still what we're training for and is what we're preparing for. So they come and uh, we rise and so our scramble jet will never stop and uh, we will stop there. Uh, Offender and in outside our uh, defense, I think that outside our ADIZ. As part of the drill, Taiwanese F 16 fighter jets roared into the night sky in front of the media. A spokesperson for Taiwan's defense ministry condemned Communist China's recent military provocations but said they provide an opportunity for Taiwan. Maintaining the intensity of our combat readiness training and ensuring the task of combat training is our responsibility. So the actions taken by the Chinese communists is a very good training opportunity for us, and we will seize this opportunity to test all the training we normally do, and through this, improve our current methods and raise our combat effectiveness. The Chinese Communist regime claims Taiwan as part of its territory and has vowed to take it over by force. Democratic Taiwan is self-governed and has never been controlled by Communist China. And trade data from the U.S. Commerce Department suggests Washington's tech curbs on Beijing may not be as effective as expected. Here's a look at why. Based on trade data, the U.S. Commerce Department approves almost all tech exports requests to China. Sales of certain critical technologies to the country have also seen an increase. Worth noting, only half of 1% of exports to China require a license, and nearly 95% of that half percent get approved. Most are high-tech exports. Because of that, the U.S. is still shipping technology over to Beijing. And some of those goods, like microchips and aircraft parts, may be helping China boost its military. But a top defense expert didn't seem to take issue with the export situation. The Pentagon's former top China export controls analyst said he had no problem trading with or feeding China, though he added he had, quote, a huge problem with arming China. Washington has applied export controls and sanctions to curb Beijing's technological expansion. Earlier this month, President Biden signed legislation to invest over $50 billion in U.S.-based semiconductor production. Likewise, the Commerce Department says it's working with the defense, state, and energy departments to manage long-term strategic competition with Beijing. Back in 2018, Congress passed the Export Control Reform Act. The rule was meant to keep a tighter grip on new technology, but critics say the progress has been slow. What's more, Congress no longer regulates other kinds of technology, like those needed to manufacture microchips. A United Nations report says Beijing imported nearly triple the amount of that kind of equipment from the U.S. in just four years' time. 
But that's not the only issue. According to a former senior commerce official, the lack of inspections on the Chinese side is also to blame. She explains that once the U.S. issues a license, it loses virtually all control over if or how the technology gets diverted. Taking a closer look at U.S. regulations, even though there are license requirements for some Chinese companies on exports, U.S. companies can still sell tech to them by simply making products outside the U.S. And over in Ukraine, Turkey's leader and the U.N. chief met with President Vladimir Zelensky today. The high-level talks are part of efforts to end the war that's been raging for nearly six months. But there seems to be little immediate progress. The leaders met in the western city of Lviv, far from the front lines. They discussed grain exports, prisoners of war exchanges, and arranging for UN atomic energy experts to visit Europe's largest nuclear power plant. There have been several incidents of shelling at the plant, which Russia and Ukraine blame on each other. The fighting has raised international fear of a nuclear disaster. The Turkish president is acting as a go-between in efforts to stop the fighting. He said he would follow up with Russian President Vladimir Putin after the meeting. This was his first visit to Ukraine since the war began and the second by the UN Secretary General. And over in the UK, rail strikes are back, leaving half of Britain's lines closed and only 20% of services running. A union boss warns the dispute could carry on indefinitely if no pay settlement is reached and noted other strikes are likely to hit different areas of the economy too. Meanwhile, the government has condemned the strike action for inflicting misery on millions. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Rail, tube and bus passengers are suffering fresh travel delays as tens of thousands of workers stage strikes in the ongoing dispute over jobs paying conditions. Mick Lynch, the General Secretary of the RMT Union, said the rail disputes could be prolonged indefinitely until there's a negotiated settlement. He also warned that Britain could come to a standstill with waves of synchronised strikes hitting every sector of the economy, but stopped short of predicting a general strike. Well, I don't know if we'll get a general strike. It's not in my power. That's up to the TUC, and it's a question of whether it's legal and all the rest of it. What you are going to get is a wave of solidarity action, generalised strike action, synchronised action. And you'll see it in every sector of the, of the economy, in education, in health, wider parts of the transport system, in all sorts of uh, sectors, the private sector as well. The current train strikes are happening Thursday 18th and Saturday 20th of August and include more than 45,000 rail staff members. A 24-hour tube strike is similarly arranged for Friday the 19th. Some bus services will also be affected as drivers are taking part in a strike called by the Unite Union. Services will be reduced on Sunday too as staff return to work. Together, these strikes create four days of disruption to travel in London and across the UK. A Department for Transport spokesperson condemned the strikes, saying the union leaders are inflicting misery on the day-to-day -day lives of millions. They said, all these strikes are doing is hurting those people the unions claim to represent, many of whom will again be out of pocket and forced to miss a day's work. Talks between rail companies and union leaders haven't reached any agreement yet. Unions have repeatedly accused the government of interfering with negotiations, but Transport Secretary Grant Shapps says it's an issue between the unions and employers. The Rail Delivery Group, which represents operators, said that if customers can't travel on Thursday or Saturday, they can use these tickets either the day before 
or up to and including Tuesday the 23rd of August. Customers can also change their tickets or claim a refund. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, one group of consumers have been instrumental in helping the fashion industry come back from the pandemic losses. We'll tell you who they are. And a beautiful botanic garden in Los Angeles has become a popular attraction for locals. NTD's Jackie Rios will bring us there after this short break. Gen Z is becoming one of the leading spenders in the fashion industry as they try to dress themselves to stand out. NTD's Sean Marshall brings us the next story. It seems Gen Z may be the future focus of luxury fashion with a growing trend of maximalism, as opposed to their millennial predecessors who often had a popular trend of relaxed minimalism. Many of Gen Z, the 10 to 24 age group, have been adopting a more is more mindset. They're set to surpass millennials by the end of the decade, perhaps reaching almost 30% of the global income, equity strategist Simon Powell said in a note to CNBC. They're the first generation to have grown up with the internet, mobile phone devices, Google, and Wi-Fi. I caught up with Raheem Mathurin at Sneakers and Stuff. He thinks a lot of Gen Z influence comes from social media. Influencers are like very important to um, a brand success, any company success actually. Um, so I think a lot of what you know, becomes like a hot item is based off of what people see other people wearing through the internet. Um, so for me personally, I look through like Instagram, TikTok helps a lot, um, sometimes Twitter. Stiff branded content and woke advertising are not the way to go, but instead UGC or user generated content is the preferred method to reach Gen Z. They want brands to speak their language and will reject any performative action, according to research by advertising firm Wordstream. I think in general too, style has become a lot more important to people now. Um, so it's like more important for people to express themselves. So clothing and shoes and accessories become a lot more um, like prominent in people's like minds now of what they need and want. I asked Mathurin, What's popular among Gen Z right now? I'd say right now, one of the most popular brands is Balenciaga. Um, and that's probably because it's like heavily backed by like Kanye right now. Um, so they get a lot of like looks through um, his influence and also social media. According to a report from Klarna, Gen Z and millennial shoppers scoop up premium goods faster than anyone else and bring preferences and priorities that are entirely different from older generations. Sean Marshall, NTD News. During the height of COVID as lockdowns were put in place, people looked to the outdoors to get away. And that's what made a botanical garden in Los Angeles a hot tourist attraction. NTD's Jackie Rios went to smell the flowers. Today we're visiting the Los Angeles County Arboretum and Botanic Garden, where locals come to forget the hustle and bustle of city life. The Botanic Garden, nestled away in the city of Arcadia, is home to a worldwide collection of trees, bushes, and flowers. Botanist Frank McDonough talked about why things are better than ever right now. We were open during COVID because our walkways were wide enough to give people plenty of distance between them. We were really lucky to stay open because people really needed a place like this where they could be out in nature. COVID brought more people. Uh, it brought people here who now appreciate the Arboretum, people fell in love with us. 
we're doing the best we've ever done. The garden is especially a popular site for bird watchers. Well, the Arboretum attracts birds. For thousands of years, this area has had a natural water feature that's had water in it throughout the year. This has attracted migratory birds, and as a result, over 250 species of birds, wild, migratory, and non-migratory birds, have been observed here at the Arboretum. We've been named as one of the best places in the United States by the Audubon Society to do bird watching. They are also rare, non-native species. We also have sightings, although this is not a native bird, of mandarin ducks here. Very beautiful ducks. Well, we have peacocks, and there's close to 200, anywhere from 200 to 400 peacocks here at any one given time. The peacocks were brought over by Lucky Baldwin back in the 1870s. He brought two or three mating pairs. Lucky Baldwin, one of the former owners of the land that the Arboretum is on, imported the peacocks from India. Back in 1947-48, uh, the Southern California Horticultural Society decided they needed another arboretum because the one that was near Dodger Stadium was full of trees. There was no room for any more. They found this spot in Arcadia that was owned by the Chandlers and had previously been owned by the Baldwin family, including Lucky Baldwin, who was a hotelier who had horse racing and everything here. So they decided this was the best spot for the new arboretum. The Arboretum has a lot to offer from its natural landscapes, waterfall, to its different historic buildings. It also hosts classes, events, concerts, and even wedding ceremonies throughout the year. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.